A 16-year-old girl overdoses in San Francisco, becoming one of 700 overdoses. Former heroin addict, now recovery advocate, Tom Wolf joins us. And also, Russia invades Ukraine and geopolitics takes center stage. Are you really America first or are you actually America last? And did you see that? Texas makes gender transition of children child abuse, and this pisses off Gavin Newsom. This is On My Mind, and I'm Ray Perez. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. This is On My Mind, and I'm Ray Perez. I appreciate you guys welcoming me into your living room. We have so much to get into. Now, there's so much pounding at the news on our social media feeds or our Twitter feeds going on across the globe, which, will, we, will, which we will get to later on. But first and foremost, I want to actually cover something that's been plaguing our streets here in California. Over the last week, a 16-year-old girl becomes one of 700 overdose deaths and falls victim to San Francisco's open-air drug market. And finally, people are starting to pay attention. Just a month ago, just a month ago, three leftist school board members were ousted for being too progressively liberal, even in San Francisco. Just a few weeks ago, the Biden administration hand, handed out free crack pipes, and our guest, Tom Wolf was featured on Fox News earlier this week, and we're going to talk about that. But you know what? You know what they're not offering? They're, not, they're offering crack pipes, but they're not offering help how to get off the streets. That should go for anybody, whether the Biden administration, the Trump administration, whoever's in government. KTVU Bay Area Reported on this, death of a 16-year-old girl in San Francisco should be a wake-up call in overdose crisis, official says. The apparent overdose death of a 16-year-old girl in San Francisco's South of Market neighborhood stunned residents and prompted call to action from city officials. Mayor London Breed in December declared a state of emergency in the Tenderloin, just blocks from where the girl died, at the epicenter of the city's drug crisis. And of course, District Attorney Chesa Boudin, who's facing a recall, obviously opposed the mayor's plan. To me, that comes off as, as tone deaf. You're in the middle of being recalled, and you oppose the mayor's plan. He tweeted over the weekend that he's committed to take and pledge to hold dealers accountable. Really? How? I want to know this. Boudin's office has been accused of going easy on dealers amid the worsening overdose crisis. And I want to be really honest with you guys, is this isn't just only here in San Francisco, this can ab absolutely not only happen to you, but this can absolutely happen to your kids. And it's actually happening over at KCRA NBC here in Sacramento. The there was a district attorney, Patrick Hogan, is a is a deputy district attorney in Stanislaw County. He joined KCRA. I want to play the clip. Go to clip one. Uh, I think last year in in, in 2020, we began to see this colored, brightly colored fentanyl. Um, I and other members of law enforcement in my county did an interview with a drug dealer uh, who was bringing fentanyl into our county. And what he described is he could go into San Francisco, into the Tenderloin and drive down the street and people would come up to his car and they would say, hey, I've got red. Hey, I've got blue, I've got purple. And that's because they were selling fentanyl in colors. 
Um, this, uh, the, the photo that you just showed was a bus that was done by the Special Investigations Unit of my county sheriff's department. Um, that is just the most recent example of this brightly colored fentanyl that is really taking over the market. And so you have to ask, this has been going on for the last, what, five years, 10 years? And I mentioned my last podcast last week, it seems that the only way that it can get the attention of our elected officials of the electorate is if it starts affecting the kids. Three progressive leftists on the school board were recalled. There has been over 700 overdose deaths. Now, finally, a child is affected, and now everybody is starting to pay attention. Breed, London Breed, Mayor Breed of San Francisco, told NPR that she announced an emergency declaration for the area last month saying drug deaths, open-air drug dealing, street chaos, and violence there has gotten totally out of control. The declaration allowed the city to fast-track the creation of a linkage center that recently opened. It's a walk-in, one-stop shop for expanded city services, such as drug, alcohol, and mental health services as well as homeless support that includes possibly a shelter and bed, eventually permanent housing, at least that's the hope. But is the linkage center enough? We're going to talk to Tom Wolf in just a second, who is a recovering heroin addict and a recovery advocate. Such a great guy. I actually met him at the state capitol. He's doing yeoman's work. We really need, actually, uh, I, I mean, I, I'm going to joke around with Tom about this, but you actually have to kind of beg the question, at what point does somebody who's advocating for those who have actually experienced this type of thing, do we need somebody like that in office to actually change the tides? That's a really good question that I think maybe not just Tom, but maybe his inner circle that he knows people because we need good people on our streets leading, leading and representing us. It's really tough to take these San Francisco elected officials seriously when they're gaslighting the situation. It's their policies that have contributed to this crisis. Adam Brinklow of sfcurb.com writes, a recent report found that San Francisco has reported to handing out 4.5 million needles, which you can say has contributed to over 10,000 overdose deaths in California alone. Most of the, most of the needles littering the streets of, the, of downtown neighborhoods came by the way of the city itself as part of the Department of Public Health's 25-year-old needle exchange program. And this report goes, meanwhile, the city struggles to figure out how to keep the streets clean, clean and safe. But you might be saying, well, what's the other side of the aisle proposing? You're all about what you're doing wrong. What do you want to do right? I've been an Uber. I was an Uber driver for two years and I saw homeless comatose on the streets. And Tom's going to talk about this with feces all over them, needles all over the floor. And. 2019's then-Senator Morlack, a Republican in Southern California, authored Senate Bill 640, which would have allowed health officials to intervene and treat very severely mentally ill homeless people who are unable to help themselves. California Democrats ended up voting no on the bill, but you know what they keep on doing? Handing out free needles. If I'm a, congress, a congressman, a uh, a senator running for office or in office, Republican or Democrat, you know what I would propose? I would propose threatening federal funding until you seize all safe injection sites. You may be thinking there's no way there's safe injection sites. According to Cron 4 News Bay Area, the city is proposing to buying an 8,000 square foot building on Geary and Hyde Street for $6.3 million. The site would provide hygienic spaces where people can bring illegal drugs 
and use sterile supplies under the supervision of trained staff members equipped with Narcan. Is this going to work? Is this even compassionate? We have to ask Tom Wolf, who's going to be coming up momentarily. And I have to tell you, and he's going to actually tell you, uh, you know, what it's like to not only be homeless on the streets. But before we get to him, and we're going to go to break in just a second, this is Tom Wolf's tweet in June 23rd, 2021. It reads, three years ago today, I spent my last day homeless on the streets of San Francisco, and I used heroin for the last time. Recovery has given me a new life. I'm free in gratitude. And not only not only is he free, not only did he give it, get his life back, but he's actually trying to give back to everybody else. We're going to we're going to talk to Tom in just a second. Don't go anywhere. Tom is next. Hey, welcome, welcome. Thanks so much for joining me. I got Mr. Thomas Wolf with me. Hey, Tom, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate you being here. Thanks, Ray. It's great to be here, man. I'm happy to do it. Yeah, it, it's really awesome. You know, I met you at uh, at the state capitol, and it was it, it was really jarring. Some of the photos that you had, which we're going to actually get into in just a second, of teenagers, like the story that I just mentioned of a 16 year old over you know overdosing on um, on heroin. But I, what I, the first thing I want to get to is tell us like who you are because I really want to convey the message to everyone that it's not like you're just some Hollywood actor and you're just coked out. You're just an average person. Can you tell us a little bit about your story, what you did before, and how you got on the streets of the Tenderloin? Yeah, sure. I, I wish I was a Hollywood actor, man. That'd be that would have <laughs> been great. Uh, so no, you know, look, I was just I am and I was just a regular guy. Uh, I'm married. I have two kids. I was a homeowner out here in the Bay Area. And in uh, early 2015, I had foot surgery. I was prescribed oxycodone for the pain. They sent me home with a 30-day supply. Uh, I didn't use that prescription as directed, and I got addicted to it. And, uh, you know, with oxycodone and, and opioids in general, they're not really, you know, they're really tight on the way they prescribe them and refill the prescriptions nowadays. So I couldn't get a refill. So I actually went on the Internet, uh, and I started Googling where I could find uh, pills on the street in San Francisco. And it took me to YouTube, believe it or not. And there were a few different videos with references to Pill Hill, which is uh, oh, wow. uh, the corner of Golden Gate and Leavenworth in the Tenderloin. And uh, so, you know, I drove down there with a with a walking boot on my foot, uh, drove down to the Tenderloin, you know, limping around with a boot on. And I found five or six guys, sure enough, selling a variety of different pills on the street. And this was in uh, 2015. So, um, you know, back then you could buy five or six different kinds of oxycodone on the street for about 30 bucks a pop. I started buying 30 milligram tablets and eventually escalated up to 80 milligram tablets. And at the peak of my addiction, I was taking 560 milligrams of oxycodone a day. And if you took that now, you would die, Ray. You, know, you would overdose wow. and die. But, you know, you build up a tolerance and your addiction deepens. And, uh, and also you have to think of the cost. I was spending $30 a pill, buying seven pills a day. 210 bucks a day times seven days a week. Uh, it, it got real expensive real fast. And that actually led you into the tenderloin for, for those that maybe only hear about the tenderloin explain what, well, what is a tenderloin like once you're down there and you, and you go down that rabbit hole of your, you know, you're overdosing on these pills and you're addicted now, what's it like sleeping there? Because I, I drove there as an Uber driver in the middle of the day on a Tuesday and I'm kind of, I'm, I need to get out of here because it's like a different world. I can only imagine what it's like being like yourself down there yeah you know it, it, things 
okay, so it's kind of tough because things didn't really spiral for me until I made the switch to heroin, and that was because of I couldn't afford the pills anymore. And when I switched to heroin, heroin, that's when I really started my downward spiral, and I ended up homeless on the street. And the thing about the Tenderloin is that the Tenderloin itself is a vibrant community. It's a mostly BIPOC community. It's mostly people of color. A lot of immigrant families that live down there in the Tenderloin. Lots of kids in the Tenderloin. There's 3,000 kids that live in that neighborhood, wow. more than any other neighborhood in San Francisco. So there are some beautiful things about this neighborhood, but it also is home to ground zero of the open-air drug dealing or what we call an open drug scene, where mm -hmm. you have literally hundreds of dealers working different shifts on different corners uh, every day, and then thousands of people on the street using drugs in that open space where kids have to walk through to school every day, where people have to conduct business every day up and down that neighborhood. And it just really makes it tough for the residents there. Uh, it's become a, It becomes a regional magnet for the entire Bay Area and even further out all the way to Sacramento for people to come down and buy their drugs because they all know that that is ground zero and that's where it's all happening. While you're there and you're getting this, your, your drugs, can you tell me how you got your drugs because you're not employed and i was hearing you know i was watching some of your interviews i think you were saying that whatever cartel was there that they were using you right to get your drugs how, how did that work well so like most people on the street that are out there uh you sign up for general assistance or general relief so you get cash money or welfare from the state or from the city i was getting uh at the time it was 524 dollars a month and about 200 dollars in food stamps that would last me about a week and then after that, I had to hustle to get money for my drugs because at that point I was homeless. I didn't have any money. I was cut off from my wife and family. My wife had placed a restraining order on me. So it's not like I could go home and ask for money or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> they started using me. Well, basically what happened is that one drug dealer came up to me one day and said, hey, Tom, quieres trabajo? You want to work? And I said, yes. And he said, here, hold this. And he gave me a gym sock full of a bunch of bindles of heroin and uh and meth and crack cocaine he said here hold this and he gave me a dime of heroin as payment and uh that's how i started kind of my journey into holding for the drug dealers out there i became a mule for them like many people that are homeless on the street out there right now uh they're holding drugs for the dealers that's how they maintain their habit that's what happened to me until the fateful day that i got arrested uh, and i thought that was going to be the end of my journey but believe it or not it wasn't it went it went deeper than that so I know in one of your interviews, you said that they, that they have like, uh, they, they come in in different shifts, right? And the video that we're showing, you're seeing tents on the streets and I can only imagine how many dealers are there in your opinion, just getting to the crux of it. What can we do? What can be done on the local level and the state level to actually disrupt this? Is there do we have to operate in law and order? I know some people kind of cringe in terms of law enforcement coming in. We're coming mm -hmm. from a political climate over the last two years of defunding the police. But is that something where a type of deterrence has to come in where you can't just do deterrence, then treatment, then home, then housing? Does it have to be all three? And how do you do that? So it, it does have to be everything. Uh, and it's not easy. So we, you know, we focus a lot on reducing the demand of drugs. That means like, you know, offering people low barrier services and safe consumption sites, harm reduction. Uh, and then, and then, you know, somewhere in the conversation slid in at the very end is drug treatment at the very, very end. It's not even prioritized, uh, but, but we can't turn away from the need for interdiction. 
or you know reducing the supply of the drugs on the street. Now, is prohibi prohibition, that ship has sailed. We're never going to stop drugs. They're here. They're coming in in too much of a mass quantity from south of the border. We're talking tons and tons of drugs every year being smuggled into the United States for sale because the cartels have figured out how to synthesize drugs. They no longer need to harvest or grow and harvest a poppy, an opium poppy field before they get their heroin. They just get three, three precursor chemicals that are smuggled in from China or imported into, from China into Mexico. They take them to a clandestine lab uh, and they create mountains of illicit fentanyl that they, some of them they press into pills, some of them they turn into powder, and then they send them on up. I, I noticed that from what I hear, and even from watching you, there's, there's a variety of different types of homeless, right? There's, there's the type of homeless that maybe they're not using. They work maybe 40 hours a week, and they're just making, they're making you know, it's, it's hard to make ends meet. Maybe they have a family. Then you have some that are maybe uh, have mental illness. Then there are some that are out there on drugs, and they can't get help. Right. I know that you mentioned before that when you're out there, you don't know you need help. It's, I, I know that there, you hadn't mentioned, and I, I think that this is a good point and it's substantive that you, we need to start investing into vans that meet people out on the streets to get them help. Can you reach out to that and how you think that can make a, maybe a start and a difference? Right. So to your first point, look, if someone came up to me when I was out on the street using and said, hey, Tom, are you okay? Do you have a drug problem? Do you need help? I, I would have looked at that person and said, what drug problem? I'm just out here chilling. I'm fine. Uh, because denial is one of the, the biggest things in addiction that we don't even consider. Uh, and also people that are mentally ill oftentimes are mentally ill and don't realize that they're even sick or don't think that they're sick. So that compounds the problem. Uh, but what you're talking about with these mobile vans is something called treatment on demand, which is an which is something that is a bipartisan thing that everybody on both sides of the aisle supports. The idea of having, for example, a mobile van pull up on the street that has outreach workers, maybe someone from law enforcement. The van is equipped with a DMV computer so that you can, you know, assess someone's identification status pull their medical information and say, look, are you ready to go to treatment? Because if you are, we can get you into, into a detox bed within three hours. Uh, that would go a long way to reducing the demand for drugs because you're technically removing someone from the street right at that very moment instead of you know having to take a week and have that person need to come to an appointment somewhere and meet with a case manager and fill out a bunch of paperwork. You're just getting their information right there on the spot and getting them up out of there and getting them somewhere where they can get some services and help. Talking about services, I know there's this linkage center that London Breed proposed for her uh, emergency declaration. How helpful is that? Is it beginning? Does it need to be more on, I don't want to say not on steroids because that's not the proper verbiage, but does it need <laughs> to be enhanced? Does it need to be just completely wiped cleaned and try something different? How is it helping at all? So if you're asking me just for my personal opinion, I think it needs to be completely wiped clean and it needs to be approached in a different way. So here's here are the statistics I'll share with you. In the first two weeks that the Lincoln Center was open, they saw 4,200 people that came through their doors. And wow. most of those people were repeat people. So it wasn't 4,000. It was probably 2,000 people that went twice as an example. Uh, when you go into that place, you can get a hot meal. On certain days, you can get showers. You can use a bathroom. You can do what they call complete what they call a housing assessment, which is basically a form that you fill out and then you get added to a list that's already a few thousand people long of people interested in housing. Uh, 
And then uh, you can maybe talk to somebody about drug treatment, which again, in San Francisco can take anywhere from one to 50 days to get into a treatment bed in San Francisco. And then out in the courtyard, they have, they've leased out a courtyard space, right? Uh, as part of the linkage center, you can go out there while you wait and you can use drugs on a city leased site. That's basically an unofficial official safe injection site or safe consumption site. They themselves deny that it is a safe consumption site. What they say is that we're providing, we're providing low barrier services. And uh, although we don't condone drug use, we're not prohibiting it either. And in the first two weeks that um, the facility has been open, 11 people overdosed inside that facility. Uh, and wow. here's, the th here, here's the thing, okay? Regardless of how you feel about safe injection sites or not, uh -huh. bottom line is that what we either have to not allow them or we have to pull this all the way to a full-on medical situation where you have doctors and nurses monitoring people, where you can track data and enter people's information, get them all set up with the full bevy of a health of healthcare to help these people that are sick in multiple, multiple ways, not just with drug addiction, right? But this stuff in between that we're doing right now, mm -hmm. where we're letting people unofficially, officially shoot dope. In uh -huh. a city-sanctioned site that's costing the city $19 million to run for three months uh, with no medical professionals on duty monitoring these people, just trained people that work for a nonprofit standing by with Narcan as they watch somebody shoot dope is not helping anybody. It's actually making the situation worse. And so I, I, I want to ask my next question kind of in jest. But actually, kind of seriously, Tom, would you ever consider running for a type of office or a type of position where you know that your experience would be of influence? So I've been asked that a few times, right? Oh, you should run for supervisor in San Francisco or something like that. And, you know, if, 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 if it were the right circumstances, I would consider that. Um, I've found that through my advocacy, though, I have... Mm -hmm garnered some influence, I guess you could say. And I've got I, I people that. from, from yeah. both sides of the aisle that are now listening to me, which is great. Mm -hmm. I've been doing some consulting work as a result of this. That's awesome. I, and, uh, you know, I've been talking to state legislatures, state legislators, local leaders. I've talked to a couple of congressmen uh, that are very interested and in not just in California, but we're talking about Texas, North Carolina, et cetera, uh, where they, they've seen my story. They're interested in finding out more about it. And I, I, I feel like my advocacy is going to pivot at a certain point that's going to focus more on drug policy and maybe some type of political action committee going forward where I can actually lobby uh, some of our local state and national leaders to, to move towards more sensible drug policy around these issues. Hey, Tom, I have just a few more questions to ask you, but if you're just joining us, we have Tom Wolf from San Francisco. He is an advocate for recovery. You can find him on Twitter at T Wolf Recovery on Twitter. He's just a great follow. He's been going up and down the state. He's been, he's been going up and down the state. He went to Skid Row, and that's actually one of my next questions that I want to actually ask you. You know, we're talking about you know mainly San Francisco. You went down to Skid Row, and I, I know I asked you what things that we need to do, but let's just say... Uh, the governor of California, let's say Gavin Newsom, calls you up tomorrow, and and even the president on the national level, because you know his his him, you know he just handed out crack pipes right the other day. <laughs> but if people in power were to actually reach out to you, because you've been on national television, you've been on San Francisco Chronicle, the New York Times, and they were to say we need to go 
to the tenderloin and skid row, what's the first thing we need to do, Tom? What do you tell them? Well, the very first thing you need to do is you need to invest deeply and very quickly in a wide-ranging shelter system, okay? Almost like FEMA-like shelter systems Mm -hmm. that you're going to have to build uh, in mass quantity. And then you're going to have to start making some trade-offs at that point about what laws you're going to enforce versus what laws you are not enforcing now. Because what we have is we have a situation where you have a bunch of people that are sick on the street. According to a UCLA study in 2019, 76% of the people on the street in LA are struggling with some type of health issue. And the majority of those are drugs, drug addiction, and untreated mental illness, right? So those folks are being treated or being uh, approached or handled and held to a different standard of law than everybody else because of their illness. And that's not necessarily fair, but if we have a place to send them, we can make things fair by saying, look, we've got a place to send you where you can get help, mm-hmm. and we, we're now going to move you off the street, whether you like it or not. And that's the trade-off that we're going to have to make. Otherwise, the situation is going to continue to expand. That would be the first step. The second step would be to have a statewide addiction and mental health treatment system implemented, like a whole separate department, cabinet-level th- position in the state. Do, do you think... And I don't mean to interrupt you because I, w- I don't want to lose this train of thought. I you had uh, I don't know if you heard of it. I mentioned SB six four zero by Senator Morlack, where it's kind of like forced treatment. Um, and this is a little bit pre my time around the Reagan era, where they had the Lanterman Petrus Act, where they were you know it was forced treatment. Do you think that forced treatment with compassion? Do you think that's one of the elements that's that's gonna that has to be part of the solution to the problem? Do you think? So my official answer to that, Ray, is that there is a subset of people on the street that require intervention. Uh-huh. I required intervention. I was one of those people. Okay. And I'm here today alive, clean and sober with my family, talking to you as a result of that intervention. Mm-hmm. So does it work for everybody? No. But does it have to be an issue that's on the table? absolutely has to be an issue that's on the table because you have people out there. It's not just some young kid that's out there high on dope. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's a 50 year old man that has schizophrenia. That's also a drug addict that has necrosis on his legs and maybe sepsis and is literally days or months away from dying. Right. And we're just going to let him die out there because of his civil liberties and because of body Mm -hmm. autonomy. I don't think so. So absolutely mandated treatment needs to be part of the equation. Hey, so last question. I know I've, I've had you on here for quite some time. I have one last question that I think this might resonate with everybody else and with you. Um, and it doesn't really have to deal with the tenderloin, but it has to deal with your family. Tell us what recovery your family went through, your wife and your kids, if you don't mind me asking. I ask because there's other people that have to go through it, right? It's not just you recovering. Maybe somebody has a brother, a cousin, a husband out there. What kind of recovery did they have to get through to be where you guys are at now? Well, the first thing I'll say is that we are a family in recovery. It's not just me. Uh-huh. It's it's a whole mindset that it's all of us because all of us experience trauma because of my addiction. And that's something that in my recovery I had to own. So <clears throat> I, you know, I went through a lot of I, I go to a lot of meetings and a lot of basements of churches to help me, you know, cope with my addiction at like mm-hmm. 12-step meetings, things like that. But with me and my family, we did a lot of family counseling. My wife and I did a lot of marriage counseling. We sat down with a with a, someone at our at our church to help us along the way too. So we pulled in different pieces from different places to help us address some of those issues. 
But the main thing that we did is that we approached this as an entire family that was in recovery. It wasn't just me. It was my wife and my kids too. So we all kind of live by the same set of principles now in our family that's rooted in faith, hope, and love. And I'm telling you, that was the way out. And now our family has a new life together. Uh, it's better than it was before. And, uh, and we're happy and we're together. And that's the main thing. And, and real quick, I, I totally forgot to bring this up. When you first started using the way how they caught you or you were found out, you were using the bathroom at work until you finally were comatose <laughs> at work, right? Like that's, that's just that's reality, right. right? Like people go to work, like that's where you're at. And now come full circle. You're almost like you're a brand new man doing yeoman's work for all of us, Tom. I, I really do appreciate it, Tom. Um, I want to extend this to you. I want to extend a pledge myself. Whatever work that you think needs to be done, let me know. And I want to be there with you because it's, you know, you had to go, you and your family had to go through that. And every time we here in Sacramento, I get off on 15th street. I see people, I work, um, downtown. I see somebody with only short, uh, with only their boxers on in 55 degree weather. And my heart hurts for them. And I even thought, you know what? I know Tom Wolf is trying to do some form of advocacy work to help them out. Um, Tom, I want to pledge, I want to help you out. I'll give you the, you know, the last word and you want to tell people how we can help you out. Well, you know, I, I formed a coalition. Uh, I found, I co-founded it along with myself and Michael Schellenberger and others, parents who've lost their kids to accidental overdose, to fentanyl poisoning, parents whose kids are homeless out in the tenderloin right now. Uh, it's called the California Peace Coalition. The website is www.californiapeacecoalition.org. Go on there, read our agenda. We talk about we talk about shelter and treatment first before housing uh, comes along uh, as the way out and that we just put the big focus on recovery uh, for this entire state because this problem is not going away. It is the issue of our time. If we don't do something about it now, by 2029, according to the last report that came out, the federal government will have over 1 million overdose deaths in this country. Wow. Guys, that's Tom Wolf, the one and only. Please follow him on Twitter at T Wolf Recovery. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. You have a great day. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, man. It's my Thank pleasure. You. Thank you so much. Guys, that that was that was Tom Wolf. He's doing yeoman's work. I appreciate you guys tuning in. Um, you know, now what we have to actually switch gears. We got to go to what's happening in our geopolitical sphere of what's going on. Russia invades Ukraine. We're gonna actually talk about that. Don't go anywhere. You're, this is on my mind, and I'm Ray Perez. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in. This is On My Mind with Ray Perez. We just had Tom Wolf, who's a recovering heroin addict and a, a homeless advocate in San Francisco. He was just telling us his life from, from almost overdosing, being a drug addict, to now he is helping the community. But I actually want to actually jump from state politics to geopolitical politics. Russia invades Ukraine and geopolitics takes center stage. And the question that I want to ask you guys is, are you really America first or are you actually America last? Now, over the last 48, 72 hours since Russia has invaded Ukraine or has attempted to invade Ukraine as they're doing as we speak, actually, it's okay to say that you don't know everything. Because there are people out there that are trying to be these geopolitical experts and myself for almost 24 hours, 48 hours, even now, I haven't really given my opinion because I don't know everything, but it's okay to ask questions such as what got us here? 
What could we have done to prevent this? And most importantly, what can we do to prevent this again in the near future? I've seen conservatives take an isolationist approach, label it as America first. But what does America first mean to you? Is it bringing all of our troops stationed around the world back home to our northern and southern borders? We have, and here's a list. Germany has 34,000 troops. Iraq, 5,000 troops. Japan, 39,000 troops. Korea, 24,000 troops. Jordan, Somalia, Uganda have a combined 2,000 U.S. troops. Spain, 3,000 troops. Portugal, 185 troops, respectively. Do we want to bring them back home and station them at our northern border to prevent Justin Trudeau's dictatorship to seep into our northern states? Do we feel comfortable enough where we bring our troops home to here in the United States? Because if China dares to shoot a missile to hit the United States, we, will, we feel comfortable enough to intercept it in Hawaii. Do we feel comfortable enough that if Nicaragua or Venezuela attempts to fly an F-150 that will intercept it at our borders? I've heard many conservatives, I've seen many conservatives saying we're spending too much money on defense. According to HistoryCentral.com, Reagan proposed $180 billion increase in defense spending. President Reagan had come to office pledging to increase defense spending to meet what, what he perceived as a growing Soviet Union. In his 1982 budget proposal, he convinced the Congress to increase defense spending by 13%. And you might be thinking, wow, that's a lot. But if I were to airlift you out of 1988 and drop you forward into the future to September 12th, 2001, and were to drop you in the middle of New York, and I were to tell you, we, we are facing this because we didn't take certain of our, certain of our enemies seriously. Do you really want to risk? Do you really want to risk taking our troops away from wherever through deterrence, through a trip wire method, which I'll get to in just a second, all because we want to focus our spending here at home? I see conservatives say we have a border crisis here at home. We have kids who are still going masked at school. We have crime. We have inflation. We have so many things that we need to worry about here at home, which is all true. But that doesn't mean we can't walk and chew gum internationally at the same time. We're just 35 years removed from Gorbachev tear down this wall to Putin is invading Ukraine. He's already gotten Crimea and Georgia. And it's okay if he kind of rebuilds the old Soviet Union. What a difference it has been to be a conservative from 35 years ago to now. The foundation at Reagan's foreign policy, known as the Reagan Doctrine, was to support the freedom of all people around the world. It was to embolden our allies and to deter our enemies. You may say, I don't care what happens in Taiwan. I don't care that China has already overtaken Hong Kong. I don't care that China is flying F-150s over Taiwan. But then you do know where 90% of our microchips come from. They come, from my, they come from Taiwan. So maybe not now, in a year, two, three years, six months, when Suzy Q wants to buy the next iPhone 14 Pro and it's going for $3,000 because China has taken a hold of the Taiwanese government and the, trade, the, the shipping routes, you still don't care about what goes on over there because we need to worry about America first? Trump, according to 
According to BBC News in 2019, they wrote, Nord Stream 2, Trump approved sanctions on Russia gas pipeline. And they continue, the sanctions target firms building Nord Stream 2, an undersea pipeline that will allow Russia to increase gas exports to Germany. The U.S. considers the project a security risk to Europe. Both Russia and the EU have strongly condemned the U.S. sanctions. Congress voted to the measure voted through the measures as part of a defense bill last week in the legislation which described the pipeline as a tool of coercion and was signed off by Trump on Friday. That's 2019, okay? That doesn't require that we have troops over there. It doesn't require that we start a war, but it does require some form of intervention and some form of policing our enemies. You fast forward to... 2020, Biden waives U.S. sanctions on Russia pipeline. May 2021. There's things that we can't grow here in the United States. We can't grow bananas. We can't make cheap clothing. But we can make top-notch technology. We make cows. Countries need beef. We need wheat. You may not care about what happens in China, but you should care about the Chinese shipping routes in the southern China Sea. We should also consider tripwire. Now, tripwire method is when we put troops in other parts of the world, like what I mentioned earlier in this podcast, like Jordan, like, like Jordan and Italy and Portugal. Because if you notice, all those countries that have current military personnel they're not being threatened because our enemies know that if they touch a U.S. soldier, that will provoke war. In the late 90s, Ukraine was agreed to get rid of their nuclear weapons. The nuclear weapons could have been used today had they not given it up to defend themselves against Russia. So while we are being isolationists, isolationists in that thought, are you really sure you're America first or is that actually making America last? I'm not saying that we need to go to war, but I am saying that we need to be, we need to be the American powerhouse. We need to show that people and other countries, they need to fear us. Because the thing with isolationism is Yes, we bring our troops home, and it feels good right now. It's that instant gratification. But there's something that we as the United States don't have that our enemies do, that in China and Russia, that they have in their system. Vladimir Putin has been ruling Russia for over 25 years. He is the longest ruling leader in all of the globe. We don't have that here, and it's a good thing. Presidents get elected or re-elected every four to eight years. Congressmen get elected or lose their elections every two years. State Senate's, what, six years? Or four, six years, four years. We don't have the opportunity to think eight, nine, ten years down the road. Putin can, can play the waiting game. He can say, I'm going to wait for, for Trump to get out of office. Or I know that Biden will only be here for four years, so I am going to go now. That is the problem with isolationism, is that if we bring our troops here and we only think about our country, our borders, then we're going to pay for it in the long run. 
I'm not claiming to be an expert. I'm not telling you that I know exactly what's going on over there. But I can start asking questions. How did we get here? How come that Vladimir Putin didn't invade the United States while Donald Trump was president? It's just a question. Hey, guys, coming up next, we're going to be talking. Uh, we're going to go taking it to the tweets. Did you, or excuse me, did you see that? Texas governor directs family services to investigate doctors, parents who enable children gender transition surgeries. This is On My Mind, and I'm Ray Perez. Come back to me. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in. I appreciate you guys welcoming me into your living rooms. I think there's one last thing that I forgot. I, I don't know if I mentioned it in my last segment. I was talking about a tripwire method. A tripwire method, I don't know if I talked about it, is that when we have U.S. troops in other countries and there's no war going on, our enemies are less likely to attack said country if we have our troops there because they know that if our troops are attacked, there could be a possibility of war. So there's no war going on. There's no deaths. But having a tripwire method will prevent other countries from expanding, like Russia, like China. Because you have to ask, do you want your enemies to expand their power or do you want to make them weak? Do you want to embolden our democratic allies? Do you want to expand Western civilization and capitalism and trading? across the globe? That's the question you have to ask. But did you see that? I want to change. We talked about California. We talked about geopolitics. Now I actually want to talk about Texas. Texas governor directs services to investigate doctors and parents who enable children, child gender transition surgeries. Brittany Bernstein writes, Governor Abbott on Tuesday ordered the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services to investigate doctors and parents who enable a child's gender transition surgery. Abbott's direction came after DFPS confirmed in August that gender transition surgery on children constitutes child abuse when Abbott asked the department to issue a determination on the matter. And you know what I have to say? Good. Good. How, how like, look, I'm 34, 30, I'm 34 years old. 25 years ago, it, it did not exist. Children being confused about their, about their gender or their ideology. The pronouns she and they and him and thems, that didn't exist until the last few years. Why is it that only now when the left, the left, not liberals, but left, the leftists are now using our children as lab rats to, to push forward their agenda of gender nonconforming gender fluidity? That's child abuse. You're openly mutilating. You are openly mutilating a child's genitalia. That's disgusting. Why is it that when a 14-year-old commits a federal crime, that under the law, they're perceived as they can't make a decision for themselves because they're minors? But yet when a child wants to do gender reaffirming surgery or gender reconstructive surgery, that's okay? My bright governor here, Gavin Newsom, he he tweeted out, trans kids and their families should be celebrated, not targeted by the state. They are heroes. This order is a direct assault on their well-being. 
to fearful families in Texas right now, California's door is always open to you. You know what's wrong with this? There are no studies at all that kids who are confused about their gender and have gone under reconstructive surgery, there's no studies that show that they are even happier after doing the gender reconstructive surgery. If anything, in the alphabet, the LGBTQ, the T, the trans, in that alphabet, they're the only ones that have a suicide rate that's higher than the Jews in the Holocaust. So, And this is including in countries where they're openly welcomed, in the Scandinavian countries. They are celebrated in L.A., Chicago, New York. Suicide rates in the trans community is high, not because they're not accepted, but because they go through these aesthetic, life-changing surgeries, and then they go home after they're done being celebrated. They sit down in their room or they lay down at night, and then they're trying to figure out why they feel the way that they do. That instead of getting therapy and trying to figure out why they feel the way they do, they just mutilated their body. You have even some that are trying to reverse their transition. This isn't something that you want to test or play with your kids. This shouldn't be. The fact that you can mutilate or change or alter any type of gender on a child, that person deserves to go to jail or prison. It's horrendous. Why is it that when a 13-year-old wants to get a tattoo, we don't allow them to get a tattoo? What this is, what this is, is this is the left not only, not only trying to advance their agenda, but there are consequences to this. And I'm not trying to make a stretch or a deep dive into this, but if you look at, like, on LinkedIn, you see people with their pronouns, him and they, her and his. Those pronouns, we have language for a reason. And telling people that they can change their pronouns to fit whatever gender ideology that they see fit, we're only adding to their confusion. And because of this, because of the change in our culture, that we didn't have this 25 years ago. I don't ever recall a child wanting to change their gender because it makes them feel good, because that type of study doesn't exist. And it's sad. I really hope that if you have children in schools, wherever you're at in any public setting, that you are over their shoulder and you make sure you look at what they are being taught in school. Good for Texas, and I hope that happens here. Guys, thanks so much for tuning in. This is On My Mind, and I'm Ray Perez. Have a good night. And real quick before I go, check me out on Apple Podcast, On My Mind with Ray Perez. If you're listening to the audio version, you can actually check me out on YouTube, On My Mind with Ray Perez. You guys have a good night, and thank you so much for tuning in.